Waldy and Bendy. Hello, welcome to Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art, the podcast they could not stop. I'm Valdemar Inushtak, art critic of the Sunday Times, but at school they called me Waldy. And on this podcast, we believe in education, so you can call me Waldy too. And speaking of education, I'm joined as always by Dr. Bendor Grosvenor, a man of massive erudition in matters of art who can teach us all so much. However, on this podcast, we like to bring him down a peg or two, so we just call him Bendy. And he loves it, don't you, Bendy? Uh, yes. No, I don't. I hated being called Bendy at school, but actually, you can imagine I got called far worse things, so perhaps it's not too bad. We all have our crosses to bear, don't we, Bendy? Luckily, we have something really good coming up later on in this uh, podcast, an interview with Damien Hurst. He's been in lockdown like the rest of us, so how's it gone for him? We're going to find out. But don't forget that everything we talk about here is illustrated and annotated and every other type of tated on the Sunday Times web pages that are devoted to this podcast. First, though, a big moment in art, something momentous to celebrate. Dodgy, 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 anniversary. Yes, it's dodgy anniversary time when we celebrate the days everyone else ignores. Bendor, did you know that 293 years ago, there was a little cry from a little baby in a church in Suffolk, and Thomas Gainsborough was baptised in Sudbury. A marvellous day for art, no? A wonderful day for British art. One of the greatest British artists who ever lived. Uh, he was an extraordinary character, really. He's sort of one of those meteors that blazes across the, the sky of British art, uh, and somehow manages to leave not much of a trace behind him. Perhaps we can come on to that later on. But he, he emerges almost fully formed, doesn't he? Because he's this self-taught genius. And sometimes I wonder if we were there in that church in Suffolk, perhaps we might have seen him being born with a paintbrush in his hand. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past him. He was certainly precocious, wasn't he? Those early uh, pictures he did when he was still living in Suffolk are so beautiful. There's so much I like about Gainsborough. Uh, absolutely one of, one of my favourite British artist, second favourite probably to, to the great William Dobson. I love his fast hands. Uh, I love the fact that he seemed to come from nowhere. I mean, there's no one like him before and there's no one really like him afterwards. He has this sort of unique presence. But I also like the, the trajectory of his career, that very powerful sense you get of a developing talent, of a, of a talent that changes. I don't know about you, but I find that the really great artists tend to have that. There's this sense of things growing, enlarging, becoming more and more fascinating. Yes, his early work is itself extraordinary enough. Um, it's, it's rather Dutch-like. It's inspired by a lot of the Dutch landscapes that he would have had around him in Suffolk. Um, and there are stories of him playing truant from school and just disappearing into the countryside and, and sketching the trees and landscape around him. And the work he produces, even at the age of 14 or 15, is good enough that, that many artists would have been happy with that level of attainment. And yet, uh, throughout his life, as you say, he carries on reinventing himself. Um, and, and that, I think, is a reflection of his very restless character. One of the things you always say, Waldemar, and I think you're quite right, is that art is not what you make with the wrist, it's what comes from between your ears. Um, 
Uh, and Gainsborough is is really one of those extraordinary characters, and and that really shines through in his paintings. Mm. He was sort of wild, wasn't he? You could imagine him at school being that the kid that's always the truant, and that and the one who's always smoking behind the the bike shed. You know, the, the one who just mm. never followed the rules. And that early work of his, I mean, it's so good. I'm not a great fan, really. Of I think they're called conversation pieces, aren't they? These. English early 18th century pictures of people sort of standing around looking like they're part of the class system. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did a few of those, but he brought something impish to it, something special. I mean, that famous painting in the National Gallery, Mr. and Mrs. Andrews, um, which incidentally you can hear me talking about on their website at the moment. But despite all that, um, it's a really interesting picture. And one of the reasons it's interesting is because Mrs. Andrews has got this strange and and in no way pleasant expression on her face. And you can just feel and see and know that the painter took against her for whatever reason, maybe because his pal, Mr. Andrews, told him something that that we don't know about. But but he just brought this level of accusation to even a little picture in the conversation piece style, which is just unique and marvellous. There's another great one of his self-portrait with his family. You know, and again, it, you know it's him. It breathes a sort of independent life. And it's that sense of independence, that sense of, of him being outside the art world, even though he was the greatest star in it, really, um, that never leaves him and that makes him such an exciting painter. Yes, and, and his career is really one of the things that I love about art because it's one of the, the great levelers, isn't it? Even in the 18th century, uh, a child of seven, the son of a poor and eventually, I think, a bankrupt weaver from Sudbury and Suffolk could attain uh, those heights. And I don't think uh, you could do that in any other way apart from, say, art or literature or perhaps science in the 18th century. Quite some parallels, actually, with his hero and mine, Sir Anthony Van Dyke, who was also one of seven and was the son of a draper in Antwerp. So two self-taught geniuses who managed to conquer the art world just with their own talent and gosh, isn't that such a refreshing thing to see, especially when British society was so bound up in the class system. Mm. You see, the other thing about Gainsborough, he had these fast hands. Now, I agree with you. I keep saying to you, it's not the talent isn't just in the wrists, it's what's between the ears. But if you have got that talent in the wrists, and he was somehow born with it, he's, he's Mozartian in the sense that he could just pick up a brush and do things with it immediately. Mm. There's that mm. instinctive thing that goes on with the really great painters where someone like Reynolds, who I know you admire enormously, and I, I like in patches a lot as well. I'm not going to not denigrate just Joshua Reynolds just because he and Gainsborough were at loggerheads. But someone like Reynolds didn't have it. See, he, he, he learned to be a, an important and indeed a profound painter on occasions. But Gainsborough was just born with these whippet hands. You know, he could just do it from the start. And that creates its own momentum and indeed its own sort of dialogue with art history there's a sort of sense with him that talent was running ahead of the pack always i mean he is a rococo painter in terms of his dates you know he fits snugly into the rococo period but he's one of the very well he's the only british painter in whom you really feel the rococo spirit in whom that thing that you get in france with votto and boucher fragonard you know the fencing fingers that wonderful sense of quickness that triumphs in him um, and so his talent seems to sort of lead him rather than him leading the talent. And, and that's something that takes him onto unique territory. And it also means, I think, that his career settles on things that no one else's career settles on. Uh, hopefully we're going to talk about his landscapes, which are brilliant. But the fact that he was doing landscapes in itself is something fascinating. The other side of his work that I adore, his pictures of his family, 
particularly his daughters, that personal thing, to involve your family in your art like that takes a different mindset from a lot of other artists who are working at the time. And so that kind of uniqueness, the schoolboy having a fag at the back of the shed thing, that sort of freedom that gave him, that, that came from his hands, I think, initially, you know, that's what really knocks you out about Gainsborough. It knocks me out anyway. Yes, I think you're entirely right. It's all down to his technique and his very idiosyncratic technique. If we think of a, of perhaps the most famous Gainsborough portrait, the Blue Boy, which is in the Huntington Collection in the United States, it's painted with these very, very thin, rapidly applied, transparent glazes. And he could paint a head and shoulders portrait in just one hour, which is something not many artists could ever do. You know, a lot of them need to come back to it for sitting after sitting and let the paint dry and build up the layers. But Gainsborough didn't work like that. He worked very quickly and impetuously. And as a result, his portraits particularly, they are so full of movement and impetuousness. They flicker, don't they? They have a sort of animated 3D effect about them. And I think that allows him to capture all sorts of characteristics and sensibilities that you don't normally get in 18th century portraiture. And you mentioned there the pictures of his children. My goodness, I don't think anybody actually, especially in British art, paints parental love quite like Gainsborough does those wonderful portraits of his two daughters uh, playing from a young age, chasing a butterfly, that's in the National Gallery. That's rooted in his technique, but it's also rooted in his personality as well, I think, because another portrait you mentioned at the National Gallery, which is the very early self-portrait of him and his wife sitting with their, their first child. Now, she actually died. And so he, he really experienced uh, parental loss. And I think, I think that's why his, his portraits of his family are so uh, amazingly tender and intimate. Mm, aren't they just I, I still do you know I cry when I look at that picture of his two daughters chasing the butterfly I've got two daughters and I pinned it up on their wall when they were growing up it, it just locks right into me you know it's an arrow in the heart I'm crying now talking about it for god's sake it's <laughs> such an unusual force in British art particularly you know the British are so stuck up and awful about these things but he was open and glorious um, and his self-portraits are also glorious for the same reason. And I think his portraits are glorious for this same kind of... If he liked you, if he was on your side as a painter, you know, he really gave you something. I mean, I, I live not far from Kenwood House, and um, there's a picture hanging up there of Countess Howe, which I will go and see every Sunday if I'm, if I'm allowed, you know. Uh, it is just so gorgeous. I mean, she's the one that looks like Helen Mirren, you know, sort of standing there in the landscape. Yes. She's, she's got this yes. pink silk dress on. And that's where the hands come in. You know, he paints that dress as if it was a piece of life bursting out. It flickers, it shimmers. It's just, it's just the most gorgeous thing on its own. And then you've got this fantastic characterization of Countess Howe as well. You know, it's just, it's magic. It's, 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 it's what art always ought to be about, but hardly ever is. And we haven't really gone down the path of his landscapes, but you know, the fact that he did them is also an expression of this kind of love for the English countryside, isn't it? I mean, I think the same sort of fondness that you get in his pictures of his children, you get in, the, in his pictures of the landscape. It's as if he's gone for a walk in it and breathed it in and said, isn't it a gorgeous day? Let's record this. There's that sort of Suffolk freshness that is just so intoxicating. I mean, I, I just can't get enough of it. I, lo I love Gainsborough. Yes, his landscapes, of course, were, especially later on in his career, they were a sort of reaction to having to paint so many portraits. And, and you mentioned that if Gainsborough liked you, he could paint an extraordinary portrait. But if he didn't like you, he could paint an extraordinary portrait for, for slightly different reasons. I mean, he could be quite acerbic 
Um, and sometimes there's lots of occasions of sitters sort of writing to him endlessly saying, please, will you finish my portrait? And it would often take him years because he just couldn't be bothered or get around to painting you know, another portrait of Lord Snooks. His later landscapes are uh, a reaction against a growing industrialization uh, of Britain and British landscapes. I mean, he was a sort of an early climate warrior in that respect. He was always trying to, to recreate uh, an image of British landscape that hadn't yet been uh, spoiled by steam and coal. But I think one of the sadnesses about Gainsborough's career is that he doesn't leave this body of followers. I mean, someone like Reynolds in his grand manner uh, and all his pupils after him, they, they carry on painting like Reynolds and Reynolds's uh, manner infuses British art for the next 50, 100 years. That doesn't happen with Gainsborough. I think it's partly because he only ever employed one pupil, that was his nephew, who who died fairly soon after Gainsborough died. Uh, so that's a tragedy. Um, it's also, I think, partly a reflection of the British system, isn't it? Because Gainsborough was such an outsider. And in the 18th century and the early 19th century, the British art establishment didn't really know what to do with people like Gainsborough. I mean, he famously had falling out with the Royal Academy. Uh, and I think we see him in the, in the mold of artists like Wright of Derby and even Constable was sort of outsider inventive people who, who never quite fit in and goodness isn't that a shame Ben I think it's simpler than that I, I think they couldn't copy him or they couldn't follow him because they weren't as good as him what he had that innate talent that spirit of the Rococo that floods so naturally through him others didn't have you see you can learn the grand manner a la Reynolds but you can't learn to paint like Gainsborough um, it, Mozart didn't have any pupils that, that convinced in the same way for the same kind of reason you know, there's, there's never been another Muhammad Ali in boxing. If you've got it, others mm. can't have it. If you don't, if they don't have it, they don't have it. But um, let's move on. We, we've This isn't really a podcast. This is a love letter to Thomas Gainsborough. And, and I'm not surprised that we're also keen on him because he is undoubtedly one of the greatest British artists of all time. Uh, we've got another pretty good British artist coming up now. So uh, let's find some time to talk to him as well as we move on to the next bit of the podcast. <laughs> Isolation. Yes, it's isolation time when we find out what's happening in the world of art during these terrible days and months and weeks that we've been living through. We've spoken to a few artists uh, so far on the podcast, and we've got a, a good one coming up now because we are lucky enough to be able to speak to Damien Hurst, who's been locked up during the pandemic, but also pretty busy, I think. Here we are, speaking to Damien Hurst. Damien, really good to see you. H how have you been spending the lockdown, and where have you been spending it? Uh, well, luckily, I've managed to be still working in my studio. You know, I had a studio where with, with um, just a couple of assistants that come and go, uh, where I've been painting. So I've been in there, really. So, but I got rid of the assistants, because uh, so I've just been really isolating in my studio and isolating at home. And I've got a driver who he isolates as well, and he only drives for me. So I just get him to drive me to the studio and back. And it's like I've been, you know, keeping sane, really, by having that kind of a routine. And that's in London, is it, Damien? Yeah, in London, in Hammersmith. It must have been quite a productive time for you then, quite positive. Yeah, I mean, I'd already set up the series that I was working on. You know, there's about 96 paintings in this series, so I'm just finishing it. I'm just coming to the end of it. I just made a kind of whole body of work of all different sizes. I worked it all out in advance what I wanted to make and how many, and then uh, it was just a case of really just going through them. I made a bit of a mistake, actually, because I started with the small and I went up to big, and I should have started with big and gone down so it gets easier. So I'm actually now working on these huge ones, which I'm really struggling to move around on my own. Can you tell us any more about them? What is the series? 
Uh, it's for a show I've got. They're just called the Cherry Blossoms, and it's for a show I've got at Cartier, which was supposed to be. Well, it's been postponed now twice. It was supposed to be in June. It's now postponed to the spring, and they're um, sort of in between representational and abstract, and there's lots of sort of blobby shapes. Larry Gagosian came into my studio and said, "Are you in love?" So I don't know if that's a compliment or a criticism, but um, they're kind of on the edge of insane and optimistic. So you've been doing a lot more painting than you used to do. At least it feels that way. Is this some sort of return to something basic in art? Is that how it can be understood? Um, I think I've always done paintings, but I suppose the big thing is, um, do you make your own? You know, these are more, you know, me actually painting on my own in the studio. And I suppose with the lockdown, that's made it more so, you know, because then it's like everybody's put into that position. But, you know, I, I kind of... It's, it's strange. I've been in there for a while now and I'm, I don't play music. Whereas when I've got assistants, I've got the radio on all the time, playing songs, playing tunes, and there's loads of distractions. I'm actually getting more done on my own, which is a surprise. So from that, from that point of view, it's a good thing, this, this kind of new intimacy almost. I mean, I like it. I like it for the focus. I like it for, you know, a lot of painting is about looking and about thinking, about sitting in front of things. So I think, it, you know, it's nice to not have any distractions to do that. I guess uh, normally I would sort of live with the painting for a month or something. Even if I think it's finished, I just live with it. And then there's a few tweaks you might want to do and things like that. Whereas I guess that happens a lot quicker when there's no one about. You really get to focus on it. I mean, it's, you know, it's pretty intense. Mm. Painting, solitary painting, maybe we should call it, is uh, something that I uh, haven't done a lot of. But I'm, I'm, fine, I'm doing a lot of it now and it makes a lot of sense and it feels good. But 90, 98, 98, did you say in the series? I mean, that's... 96, that's, yeah. 96, that's a lot, lot of paintings. A lot of times to be solitary, isn't it? I mean, it's... Yeah, I mean, it takes a couple of years to paint that many. But, you know, it's like I kind of... You know, what, what I, I've got a business manager that I've been working with for a while now, and he just said a great thing to me, whereas he said... Because um, a lot of what I used to do is I'd make an endless series. So I'll say, I'm going to make spot paintings, I'm going to make an endless series, I'm going to make them forever. And I kind of had this idea that I was like this sort of machine who paints, a man who's a machine or something like that. Um, and then it sort of creates a little bit of confusion in the market, you know, of, of like how many are there, how many are they going to be, what are you going to do? And then he pointed out to me that he said, it doesn't really matter how many you make, as long as you're clear about it. And what was happening was I wasn't being clear. So I think, you know, you can make 10,000 paintings, but if you say at the beginning, there's going to be 10,000 of these, that's what you've got to do, you know. Mm. What, what do you get out of painting that you don't get out of the other things that you do? You know, the sculptures, the, the installations, the formaldehyde bits, the butterfly pictures? Um, I mean, I suppose you get everything that you get from those other things. You know, when, when you're making all those installations, it involves like lots and lots of other people, you know. So you're, you're kind of at the beck and call of installers. I suppose one thing about painting is you don't have to deal with gravity, which is a nightmare in the things that I have to do. You know, it's like the thicknesses of glass and steel and the strength of things and how to move things. It all gets very, very complicated. Whereas in a painting, you know, you can turn it upside down and there's no gravity and you can be three-dimensional or it can be flat, it can be surface. You can really get involved in a much purer aesthetic substance in some way or something. I don't know. It just seems totally real even though it's an illusion. It sort of accepts an illusion, so it gives you a lot more areas to play. So are you able to step back from this period we're going through, this weird, weird time, like nothing else we'll ever live through again, probably? I hope so, anyway. Are you able to step back from it and see what kind of impact it might be having? Well, first of all, on you, but just on art in general, or something, you know, is there a big picture here? I think art always finds a way. I mean, you know, it's, it's like there's, you know, there's so much you can do in art. I mean, I was thinking the other day that if I wasn't able to paint in my studio, 
I'd just set up a small studio in my house and draw, or I'd use watercolors, or I'd, you know, there's always a way to create. You know, to, to be an artist entirely, you just you don't need much space. You know, you can just do that. So I think you know, in terms of the actual making of art, I don't think it's a massive blockage. But I suppose people have got to be inventive. You know, maybe there'll, there'll be a big reduction in scale of what people are doing, or you know, things things like that in the future. Everything needs to be reassessed. So I guess you know, people will be reassessing that in art. When I came into it, I was, you know, it was a body of work that I started before the, the lockdown or the, you know, the coronavirus. But yeah, I mean, I suppose in a way, when you, you, you know, artists make art for people who haven't been born yet. That's the kind of idea you're making it. You're looking like 100 years into the future. If you're lucky, you know, you're thinking these things will have an impact then. So I suppose, you know, you can think outside of a, of a virus or a situation like that. Is it a, a situation that feels more real because of this sort of sudden urgency to it all? This sort of, this kind of pared down directness to it, isn't it? You're just sort of staring at death, basically. Yeah, I mean, I suppose there's, uh, you know, it's quite good because the, you know, the money goes out of the market, which is quite good. Though. The silly money, maybe we should call it. I mean, I've always found it a lot easier to make art in a crisis than in a boom time, even though a lot, but a lot of the art I've made, I've sort of struggled against, you know, a lot of, success but like in you know you've always got to wonder who you how you measure success so the success is in other people's terms not really in my own whereas in a crisis situation like this you are forced to look at your own success in your own terms which i think is a good thing but will, will this period which has been so forceful so kind of strong it's got such a strong taste to it these last few months has that impacted on your work you know we're going to be able to look at your work and say that's that's the damien hurst period from the isolation um, I'm not sure. I don't really know. I think it might be further down the line than that. I mean, I'm not sure it's, it's sort of now because it sort of comes unexpectedly. I mean, I was thinking it might be the the era of the viruses now. I think we might be followed with another one and another one. You know, it's like we've you know we've had such a good run in. And when you look back, you know, like at the you know, the Spanish flu and Egon Schiele, you know, dying in the Spanish flu and things like that, you you actually think you know it's about time for something like this to happen. But it doesn't really seem to stop art or change art or you know i mean art you know art's about life and this is just a part of life i think so i'm not I'm, you know i'm not quite sure i mean i've always used you know medical things so obviously i'm looking at the ventilators and i'm looking at the masks and all that kind of stuff and I, you know i love all that stuff but, I, but you know i've already made art about all that kind of stuff so it's not i'm not getting a direct influence in it i mean i suppose at this time in my life you get you know I'm at an age where you think a bit more about your own mortality because you've got less time ahead than you have behind you and you know that's that comes into play a little bit but then I've always really thought like that I think all artists do I mean I suppose you get rid of um, you know you would you would hope that you get rid of a lot of crap focuses people on more on what's real in uh, you know in times like this I mean, one thing that definitely happens is you make, I'm making less sculpture and more painting because of the, you know, the complexity of having to do that. So the paintings are, are, are a lot easier to make in this thing. So I guess maybe, you know, maybe a, a, a big new era of painting will be coming back in. But then it's always painting coming back in, isn't there? We live in hope. <laughs> yeah, from my point of view, I love it when, it, when that happens, yeah. when the pendulum swims back to painting. That, that John Lennon quote, what did he say when he was asked why he, grew, why he cut his hair in the 70s, shaved his head? He said, what else am I going to do after I've grown it? That's the other <laughs> thing, isn't it? Long hair, short hair. No, that's right, yeah. Romanticism, yeah. classicism. Yeah. It's great talking to you, Damien. Well, good luck. Looking forward to seeing the show as well. I'm sure something will emerge from this great yeah, you moment too, man. of ours. Be well. Take care.
There you are, Damien Hurst at work here in London, busily churning out 96 pictures one after the other. What did you make of that then, Bendor? Well, I thought it's fascinating to see actually the contrast between all three artists you've now interviewed uh, and the way they're working differently during the lockdown. I mean, Tracy Emin seems to be really uh, feeling the effects of of the lockdown. Uh, Grayson Perry is is out there seeking his audience and sharing his knowledge on TV. And Damien Hurst is just sort of carrying on doing what he does, isn't he? I mean, I'm wary about being too rude about our guests who kindly come on and give us their time. But he did in the interview expressly invite us to consider that he's, he says he's painting pictures for people who aren't born yet. So he's asking us to consider what his reputation will be in a hundred years time. Um, and I suspect it won't be quite what it is now, or in fact, anything like it. Uh, I mean, in the interview, you did invite him a number of times to, to reflect on how the lockdown, how the pandemic is, is affecting his art and other artists. And it seemed to me he didn't really have much of an answer. He was focusing very much on the, the manufacturing process and carrying on churning out the pictures. Perhaps I'm being a little bit unfair. Well, I think he did sound slightly less engaged than some of the others we've talked to. The lockdown, I suspect he's sort of isolated from the lockdown in ways that maybe other people are not. Um, I mean, he's incredibly rich, frankly. Now, he's always had a lot of um, assistance at work with him. But for me, you see, I, I believe in Damien Hurst. I've, I've followed his career right from the beginning. And he, he you know, we've been talking about, about Gainsborough a moment ago, how he didn't fit in at all. Well, neither did Damien. You know, he was always someone who was fighting against the British art system. I mean, he single-handedly triggered the whole Britpop thing, you know, the young British artist, YBA. I mean, he is a, another great force for life. He's got so much kind of energy and power. And, and I think this is the most important thing, I genuinely believe that he loves art and trusts in art and believes in art and wants to be a great power in art. Hence this stuff about what's happening 100 years from now, 200 years from now, how he'll be appreciated. He desperately wants to be seen as a real force in art. But he's also created a situation for himself where that's, that can be tricky to achieve. I mean, he's, he's in a commercial situation where he's got to knock out an awful lot of pictures in a hurry. Um, he's got all these sort of financial obligations now because he's bought museums and big houses and he's rebuilding this and that. And I personally had hoped that during the lockdown, you know, you go mano a mano with your art, don't you? It's just you and the picture, you and the artwork. And, and that would bring a kind of truth to the, to the process. But he's still caught up in the system and he's still got to churn out 92 pictures. However good they are, there's still 92 of them. So it's a little bit sad. And for me, you know, I trust in Damien Hurst and I also think he'll keep coming back and, and there, there are great things ahead for him. But perhaps this lockdown didn't really halt him and make him confront in the way that it could have done and, and God knows, maybe even should have done. But that's, I have those kind of doubts, Bendor. Yes, I have to say I am an admirer of his. I particularly admire his early work and the way he, he broke the system. But I think he has been, unfortunately, consumed by the system. I mean, he's talking there of, you know, producing these 98 or whatever pictures for Cartier, uh, cheered on by his agent and his business partner. And he's quite conscious now of, of his place in the market and how he's got to serve it. I think that's rather unfortunate. But, you know, does that reflect... Does that reflect what his art is about and what it's always been about. I mean, isn't it essentially um, meaningless to, to serve a market like that? Uh, I'm uh, hey, hey, excuse, excuse me, Ben, do I have to interrupt there? Who's your favourite yeah. artist? 
Sir Anthony Van Dyke. Who did he work for? Charles I. He churned out pictures of the king. He churned out pictures of Lord Snook and Lady Snook. He was busily employed by everybody who'd pay him. Most who Rubens employed by everybody. You know, there's plenty of precedent for artists who 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 do stuff because it's their business, it's their livelihood, it's what they do. Absolutely. I'll tell you what, I used to have one of his spot paintings, right, which is one of the things he did near the beginning. He did a load of these spot paintings, which are paintings covered with spots. They looked a bit like a sort of surah if it had been put through a machine, you know. I had to sell it in the end because I was broke. But do you know what? It gave me more joy than almost anything I've had because he has got an understanding of the impact of art, of, of the sort of the, the art is, is, is stuff that comes in through your eyes, completely, completely circumnavigates the brain and just speaks to some sort of pleasure system inside you that's somehow built on all the other things you've ever seen through your eyes, you know. He knows that and he feels it. And my spot painting was a glorious, wonderful thing. And these things he's churning out now, they might be as good. I don't know. I haven't seen them. But I wouldn't hold it against him that he's tried to be a successful artist and made a career out of it because that's what they all do. Yes, no, I entirely agree. And please don't get me wrong, I'm not holding it against him. All artists work for uh, money at the end of the day, um, even Michelangelo. Now, there is always, though, a question of extent, isn't there, and, and scale. And I think he touched on it in that interview, saying that he was just doing these limitless series of things, you know, endless spot paintings. I mean, I'm very glad that the spot painting did it for you. It absolutely doesn't for me. It seemed to me uh, the kind of, you know, brand art that worked well for a pre-COVID age, so, something that you could put on your wall and really said more about you than the art itself, because it could yeah, mean but, anything but, but, to but, anyone. And, and, and all those spin paintings, I mean, I, I just don't, I don't, they don't move me at all. And I think but, it's quite but, interesting but, that the but, spin painting, I... hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> the spin painting we see most these days is that ghastly one, the back of Matt Hancock's office, you know, the spin painting of the queen on it. I mean, it's, it's everything that an ambitious uh, Tory cabinet minister wants to project, isn't it? That's why he's got it in the back of his office. But, 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 and that, you let me but, in on but what? Yeah, but, we, yeah okay. How many butts can a man come up with? No, of course you're right. And they, and some of them are a bit like that. I'm not going to deny. I don't like all the spin paintings. But please don't take away from me my genuine pleasure at the dot painting that I had. I'm not talking about something I invented. And I'm, I'm talking about something that worked, that the artist gave to me that worked. You know, it worked on abstract levels and was deeply beautiful. What can I say? However it was produced, and in whatever circumstances, given that he'd made a lot of them, it worked. And the reason it worked was because he is genuinely at heart uh, an artist with sensibilities and sensitivities and proper ones at that. Look, there's plenty to criticise Damon Hirst for. God knows you're, you're at the end of a very long queue when it comes to that. But in the end, I think there's something truthful about him. And I think that sometimes it emerges in places where you don't even expect it. For example, He's turned down knighthoods. He's never joined the Royal Academy. You know, he hasn't represented Britain at the Venice Biennale, even though he was invited. He will never be an establishment figure. He's turned all that down. A lot of the guys that don't turn it down, look what happens to them. You know, he's a genuine rebel. He's something real. And I just trust in him. That's all it is. I mean, yes, I don't think he's going through a good phase at the moment, particularly, but I trust in him. And you must trust in me when I say I got something very real from his work. Good. Well, I do trust you, but I also think you were wise to sell it when you did. 
<laughs> well, yeah, that, I'm not going to argue with that either. However, let's, that's enough. Uh, Damien Hurst, it was very kind to, of him to, to, to talk to us and we'll see what happens. You know, as I said, I believe that perhaps good things will happen in the future. But um, we don't need to worry about that right now because we are going on to what we know are good things because we are going on to the bit we all love where we get to choose whatever we want to have in our world in the future. On the wall. Yes, it's on the wall, the dreamy bit of the podcast where Bendor and I get to create our museum without walls, where we can have absolutely anything we want from the great and wonderful world of art for us to look at while the isolation peters out or continues at least for a while. What have you chosen this time, Bendor? I've gone for a miniature by the greatest miniature artist who ever lived, Samuel Cooper. It's a portrait of Oliver Cromwell. And you and I have been talking about uh, great artworks during the lockdown that we're inviting people to see online. And the truth often is that it's really looking at art online is a pale imitation of standing in front of, of a giant canvas. But with a portrait miniature, actually, it's quite well suited to looking at art online because you can zoom in on all the glorious details. And this is one of the finest portrait miniatures ever painted. It was painted about 1653 at around the time uh, Oliver Cromwell uh, appointed himself Lord Protector of Britain. And the extraordinary thing about it is that it is absolutely not your typical portrait of an all-powerful ruler. He's there with his sort of balding hair, wispy thin hair um, laid low over his forehead, and of course uh, the famous wart. It is the best painted wart in art history and if you zoom in on it you can actually see that it's quite repulsive it's all sort of white and flaky now how extraordinary that oliver cromwell wanted to have himself painted like this and what a contrast to uh, charles i being uh, obscenely flattered by van dyke uh, before him uh, and one of the, th the reasons i love this little miniature is it it packs such a punch uh, and it's a it's a rare moment in art history when you get a collision between a truly great sitter, a revolutionary, a man who overturned everything in Britain, and a truly great artist. Um, and one of the other things that is so extraordinary about it is it's in fantastic condition still, and it's it's unfinished. This was just a, a life sketch that was, to, was painted to be uh, replicated again and again as the official portrait of Cromwell. And so because it's unfinished and, and there's no costume painted in, it has a, a great immediacy. And it's really as if we're meeting Cromwell himself. So this portrait miniature, it belongs to the Duke of Buccleuch. It's at Bowhill House, which is not far from me in the Scottish borders. But just for the lockdown, I'm going to borrow it and put it in my miniature cabinet here at home. Well, it's glorious. I'm not going to argue with you about that. How big is it? Well, what's the actual size? Uh, three inches. How do they do it, these guys? You know, the, the depth of detail that is achieved in this tiny, tiny space, I mean, it is astonishing. You, you mentioned the wart, you know, that's great. He's a brilliant wart. Uh, but I love the hair, you know, he's going bald, but the, the way it sort of flops forward so that you see the baldness behind, you know, it's that sort of Donald Trumpy type of hairstyle where he's trying to comb mm -hmm. it forward. It is such a sort of wonderful image of humanity. I mean, is it you say it's unfinished. Was it was it unfinished because Cromwell didn't like it in the end? I wouldn't be surprised if that's so, by the way, because it certainly doesn't make him out to be anything heroic. Well, I think that's what Cromwell was after. Um, you've got to imagine he's just cut off the head of King Charles I. And King Charles I had been, as I say, uh, rather obscenely flattered by Van Dyck into, into uh, something that he wasn't. 
Well, Cromwell wanted to be portrayed as he was. And uh, famously, he comes in and says to Cooper, I want you to paint me warts and all, or I will not pay you a farthing. Is that where warts and all comes from, then, the expression? That's where the expression comes from, indeed. And so uh, this portrait went on then to be replicated a number of times by Cooper and Lely and other artists. It became the official portrait of Cromwell for the interregnum. And I think it was deliberately designed, as I say, to be the opposite of what had gone before. And it's a reflection of how important art and portraiture is in politics. Miniatures are interesting, aren't they? I mean, I'll be honest with you, I, I'm not a natural lover of the miniature. Uh, scale is so important to me in art. And the fact that you have to kind of lean in and see these things um, almost with a magnifying glass does impact on the experience of enjoying them. And it's not to say I don't think they're a marvellous achievement, because I do, but I just find naturally they're not the, the most grabby of objects. I mean, in a way, for obvious reasons. They, they, they seem to me to exist closer to the world of jewels, you know, to say the world of kind of miniature miracles. I remember Holbein um, was, was taught, wasn't he, by, by his grandmother to paint at some point. And his, his miniatures, they're done with, with one hair, aren't they? So there's not a brush, it's a hair. You need one single hair to paint. That sense of the miraculous, of this, um, God, how is that even possible? You know, that that you get in jewels as well. That's what I get from a miniature. But what I would love is for somebody to invent a really great system for displaying them. Because you, usually when you come across them in galleries, so, you, know, you know, if you go to the Wallace collection, you have to lift up this velvet cloth and you look in and it's dark in there. And there's no space for them to wham you in the heart. Even at the National Portrait Gallery, the miniatures just don't quite play big. And I think there's something about, about the way you present them that may help with that, because they are a very intimate, very personal form of art, uh, and therefore quite difficult to make them feel big in, in public circumstances. So it's interesting that Cromwell should choose a miniature as a format for the presentation of his image, for these reasons I'm talking about. It's never going to play big in the public imagination, is it, in the same way? No, you, you make a very good point. And unfortunately, because these things are so often painted in watercolours, they're impossible to display very frequently because they fade in the light but Cromwell went to Cooper simply because he was the very best person around at capturing a likeness uh, and it was scaled up by artists like Peter Lely uh, and then circulated that way so the extraordinary thing about this this miniature if you hold it and I've been lucky enough to hold it is that it glows and it it sort of has a it has a presence itself it's quite magical actually yeah I, re I read somewhere about it that the back of it it's got bloodstone Bloodstone's a beautiful stone. It's that sort of dark green stone with flashes of red in it. So again, it's this aspect of it being like a jewel. I, I, I like a jewel anyway, best of times, but uh, this would be a gorgeous thing to hold. Bloodstone on one hand, Oliver Cromwell on the other. Ooh, ooh, I'm talking myself into excitement here. That does sound absolutely amazing. In my On the Wall, I'm, you don't have to do any imagining for mine. You don't have to, um, to consider any other circumstances. There are no excuses necessary. My thing is just blasting you right out of the water, straight between the eyes, unmissable, fantastic and huge, because I have decided, because you always have stuff in that's just there for the pleasure, I'm going to do the same this week. And so my on the wall thing won't even, well, it certainly won't fit in the house. It won't even fit in the garden. It, it might not even fit in the bit of London that I live in, mm -hmm. um, because I've gone for the Taj Mahal. All Hang of on. it. The building. The building. It's an artwork. It's a building. I've gone for the whole Taj Mahal. And I've done that because I need a blast of, of miraculously great art, of something absolutely befuddling, something just stunning that leaves you lying on your back, shuddering and muttering with spent, exhaustive 
love of art. I need something really powerful like that. And although I like your little miniature, this, this, the Taj Mahal, that gets, that gets me in, you know, straight away, um, knocks me out. And, and you know what? This is interesting. I didn't know what you were choosing, but did you know that our things were both done in the same year? In other words, Cromwell was painted in 1653. The Taj Mahal was completed, you know, it was mostly completed by 1643, but the very final bit of the dome was completed in 1653. These are of the same year, totally by accident, from different directions. We've come to the same place, Bendor. That is extraordinary. Do you know, for some reason, I thought the Taj Mahal was a sort of early 18th century thing. Isn't that appalling how ignorant I am of... It is. I mean, it was started in the 1630s. But what happened was this, uh, the great Mughal Indian Emperor Shah Jahan, his wife died um, in childbirth. She was giving birth to, I think it was their 14th child. She died in childbirth. And this was his memorial to her. So it's a love building. It's a building put up to express his undying love for his great wife and favorite wife. And um, I've been there a couple of occasions. And Boy, is it is it something gorgeous. You know, it's made from white marble. It, its proportions are perfect. You know, the way that Islamic art chose proportions as one of its weapons, one of the, the things that work with it, that affect you. And I'm not a mathematician, so I don't know what it is. All I know is, boy, are these proportions perfect. Not just the building itself, not just the arrangement of the height of the minarets, the height of the dome, the width. There's something about the way it sits in the landscape that is just perfect. The way it sits against the sky that is perfect. And then, of course, whiteness. Hey, listen, whiteness is always good. But if you set it against an Indian blue sky and these beautiful reflections that you also get in front of it in the water, it just, it's too good to be true. It is an angelic building in the sense that it feels absolutely divine. It's certainly transportative. And the closer you get to it, the whiter it becomes. But then when you get really close to it, I mean, really close, you realize that actually there's quite a lot going on in it. It's not a blank piece of whiteness. There are these gorgeous, stunning inlays all over it, and sort of flowers and other kind of Islamic art and, and inscriptions and bits of calligraphy. So there's a sort of close-up brilliance to it and joy, and then a distant brilliance and joy. It's, it shows you why great Islamic art is as good as it is because it doesn't need the figures it doesn't need the stuff that we have in our art it, it does it all through some just this sort of powerful beauty of given proportions and given materials that can knock you out and that is absolutely what i need at the moment i don't need any more boris johnson and his five o'clock newscasts filling me with nonsense i need something real and powerful just to make me realize and remember how great life is so yes i would get the Taj Mahal, I would transport it from Agra in India, I'd put it up somewhere where I can see it in my garden, um, and I would faint happily in front of it over and over and over again. Well, what a privilege that would be. I mean, there are certain buildings where, as you say, the proportions are so perfect, but the scale of it uh, can sort of uh, knock all other emotions and worries out of you, can't it? If a building is perfect, and that can certainly do it. I've only been there once. Uh, I went to the other side of the river. Did you do that and, and look I at it? I've done that. Yeah, I've got a story about that as well, but I'll hear yours first. Well, mine isn't really a story. It's just that I was slightly overwhelmed with all the crowds on the, you know, in it. So I walked around. It's quite a trek and it's quite marshy and muddy, or at least it was when I was there. I stood there trying to take photos of it like a, like a cheap tourist. Uh, and there was a farmer there with a trident, like Poseidon. He suddenly emerged from the river and he shooed me away. 
and quite rightly, because I think he was fed up with tourists like me coming and trespassing on his patch. But is there is there a photograph of you sitting on the bench winsomely like uh, Princess Diana in front? Absolutely, of there is. I mean, there are several of them. I mean, I, I, and I'm looking forward to doing the next one the next time I go. But uh, with the river, it's very interesting, actually, because, yes, I remember going there way back. I think it was in the 1990s. Um, and uh, we were filming, in fact, from the back of the back of the Taj Mahal. And the river was really wide and really full of water. And there was a boatman doing this fabulous journey across the river. He was ferrying people along, singing this gorgeous song, this haunting uh, Indian song. And um, we recorded it. We had it in the film, in fact. And we went across on the boat. It was all very thrilling. But the next time I went, we went the same journey, went round the back. We went through the, the sort of village owned by the undesirables, the so-called undesirables, ended up by the side of the river. And, and there was no river left. The river Yumna had pretty much dried out you know climate change had worked its terrible force on it all so it was all rather tragic actually and um there was a sort of confrontation with a rather grim reality of what's happening climatically in the world but um yes uh, the the Taj Mahal looks as good from the back as it does from the front and it looks great from the sides as well I might add it is in most senses I think the most perfect building certainly the most perfect one that I've ever seen perfection um we should leave it there, shouldn't we? Being perfect, we shouldn't really transport it back because it doesn't belong to us. Yes, well, I think we do need to leave it there. We can't improve on perfection. Not even you, Bendor, can achieve that. Oh, God knows you can achieve everything else. That's enough from us. We've been yapping away as always for far too long. That's the end of the podcast. And from me, it is goodbye. And from Bendor, it is cheerio. Waldy and Bendy.